So continuing our series of studies in Paul's letter to this small church in Rome 2,000 years ago, I wonder what time it is. I don't mean look at your watch. I mean, what is the present time? I'm, I'm referring, uh, uh, using verse 11, really, in terms of trying to understand time. If you look down at verse 11 from Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, do this understanding the present time time. We need to understand what is the present time. We need to know what the time it is in terms of history, in terms of the grand scale of things, in terms of God's calendar, God's watch, if you like, not just ours. And the fascinating thing, I think, from this passage, from the next verse, in verse 12, is we're told the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So in answer to the question, what time is it? It's almost dawn, according to Paul, as he writes these words. It's almost dawn. The day, the light, is almost here. This sad and broken and disjointed world, which, goodness, we've seen highlighted so clearly this week, haven't we? Which is often referred to as the darkness or the night in the Bible. This disjointed world is almost over. And the glorious future of resurrection morning is nearly here, says Paul. It's nearly here. All things will be made new. We're going to meet Jesus soon. That's the next thing on the calendar of the Almighty in heaven. It's when we think and continually remember this truth, that Jesus is coming back, that resurrection morning is just on the horizon, that it's almost dawn. It's when we think and remember this truth that we're able to live the way that Paul outlines in these chapters. In fact, it's only with that glorious image, that reminder of Jesus' return at the forefront of our minds that we're able to live like this. That's why Paul says in verse 11, and don't worry, we will look at the other verses, but just on verse 11, it's do this, understanding the present time. Do what? What is it that Paul wants us to do? Well, in actual fact, I think it's probably all of what we've seen in chapter 12 and so far in chapter 13. Do this, live this way. The difficult work of loving each other, which we saw last week when Rob spoke to us. Loving each other sincerely, even loving our enemies, says Paul. Leaving all revenge to God, not taking it into our own hands. Never lacking in zeal. Doing all these things, do this, says Paul, how with our eyes fixed on the dawn, on the light, on the sun that's just about to rise. Because, And it is important to have that vision ahead of us, because what Paul says, not only in chapter 12 in those difficult words last week, but at the start of this chapter, it is difficult, it's controversial, it's perhaps even outrageous. It's not difficult to understand But it is sometimes difficult for us to put into practice. Look again with me then, back at chapter 13, verse 1, the first verse of that reading that Carol read to us. Everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities. Everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities. There we have it. Don't break the law. Do what the governing authorities tell you. It's quite simple and straightforward, isn't it? Yet, in practice, it can be so much more difficult to live as a model citizen, a citizen who never breaks the law, who never breaks the speed limit, 
who always pays their taxes, who doesn't rebel against those in government. For some of us, that might not seem particularly tough. But for many of us, that simple instruction immediately makes us tense up and think, whoa, hang on a minute. But what if the government is rubbish? What if I don't agree with what the government do and say? What if they behave in a horrendous way towards other people or towards me? Obviously, we don't have to submit to governing authorities then, do we? Well, I think it's worth remembering the circumstances in which Paul wrote these words. For Paul, the governing authorities, those he was referring to, were almost certainly led by Emperor Nero. And Nero would almost certainly feature on the top ten list of cruel and vicious dictators in all of history. They were the governing authorities at the time of Paul. And Paul says, submit to those authorities. No, surely, Paul, there are some circumstances, there are some conditions on this. There are some circumstances when we shouldn't commit, uh, submit to authorities. It's, it, it's simply wrong. It's not possible to do that. You can't really mean it, not in a serious way, Paul, not to people who live under people like Nero or Stalin or Hitler or Chairman Mao or choose your dictator. Yet Paul isn't naive. He is well aware of the nature of these and other evil rulers. And he tells the followers of Jesus, submit themselves to governing authorities. And it's the second half of verse 1 that spells out the reason for this difficult perhaps irrational, perhaps even seemingly impossible behaviour. The second part of verse 1, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Submit yourselves to the governing authority, says Paul, because God has put those authorities there. He doesn't say that God approves of all governors and authorities and kings and governments and dictators, but no, he has established them. All he's trying to say is no ruler, no prime minister, no government, no dictator, king or queen ascends to power without the living God ordaining it and establishing it. This view of the authority, the exalted position of the living God over all the affairs of the world is so often watered down. I wonder whether the God that we believe in is the God who directs the hearts of kings like a watercourse, it says in Proverbs, who's in control of all of the events of the world, even the horrendous events that we see going on around us. Even Christians are prone to thinking that the true and living God is somehow powerless to do anything towards such leaders and such circumstances, or perhaps even worse, that he just doesn't care enough to do anything. Neither of these accusations are true, and it's perhaps because we have domesticated the living God and we have made him too small in our minds, in our hearts, in our worldview, maybe even in our worship, that we struggle to come to terms with this authoritative, true and living God. The God we believe in isn't a God who's just constantly dishing out sweet things to us and to everyone else, and who has our agenda and our worldview at the top of his list of priorities. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is in charge of all things, and he raises rulers and kings and queens, giving them responsibility, 
ensuring. We found it in Exodus, telling Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose, that you will make my name known in all the world. What did Pharaoh do? He did exactly the opposite. Who is this God? I'm not interested. God raises up kings and rulers with responsibilities, and if they behave dreadfully and badly, he brings them down in his timing, in his perfect world. The key to applying this passage then, the key to understanding how we behave towards authorities, as we saw at the beginning, is in verse 11, to hold the day of Jesus' return at the forefront of our minds. That's what is about to happen. Jesus is coming again soon. There'll be a cosmic transformation, a glorious future just around the corner. And all our focus and all our attention needs to be towards that, that end, that moment. Several times in the Bible, we're called to live as aliens in this world, to be radically different to those around us. Or as we saw in chapter 12 a couple of weeks ago, to be transformed. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So I wonder, do our friends and our work colleagues and our non-Christian family members think of us like that? Do they think of us as slightly alien? Do they think of us as being a little bit out of our minds? Disconnected? Heavenly minded, perhaps? Obsessed with Jesus and longing to see him soon? Is that how our friends and the people around us think of us? When we do live that way, when we do live longing to see Jesus and knowing that it's almost dawn and the resurrection future of resurrection morning is just around the corner, then we things that see, things that seem so important, that seem so significant and necessary, really aren't on the grand scale of things. Changing the government or resisting a policy or rebelling against a legal requirement is far too small a vision for those of us who love the risen, returning Jesus. He's got an agenda that is so much bigger, so much more glorious, so much more wonderful. And in light of that, we're called to live in a totally different way. And Jesus not only modelled this behaviour, submitting himself to the authorities, ultimately to his death, but in his parables, he teaches us how to do this. And he says, live this way because of the future. And remember, so many of Jesus' parables are about the wedding feast of the Lamb, or the harvest at the end of the age, or the day of judgment, or the return of the King. All of these are the goal of Jesus' parables in order to affect the way that we live today and to drive our behaviour. If people don't see this sort of disconnection to the world and its ways in us, we're not living in light of the imminent dawn. Wake up, says Paul in verse 11. That's an easy thing to say, isn't it, at this time of day? Although in such a cold church, if you want a blanket, by the way, there are some blankets. Uh, Not that I'm going to be here for another hour and a half, I promise. But um, Wake up, says Paul in verse 11. Wake up. If you continue to live as if Jesus isn't coming back, that the living God isn't in control of all things and working out his purposes, if you believe that God hasn't got a perfect plan, which is just about to come into fulfilment, if we don't rise ourselves from the slumber, the slumber that we so easily fall into when we're sucked into the ways of the world and the relatively unimportant matters that fill the airwaves and that deflect our attention, 
then we'll never be able to live in obedience to these instructions. Submit to authorities. Never take vengeance. Never be lacking in zeal. Love each other sincerely, even at the cost to ourselves. We can't do it without that clear vision of Jesus just on the horizon. If, however, we live as those who know and believe that the night is almost over and that the new world is just around the corner, if we live believing that nothing in this fallen world is worth clinging on to other than Jesus, if we're convinced that nothing has eternal value other than Jesus Christ, if we accept that nothing can truly make a difference and improves people's lives and futures other than the good news of Jesus Christ, then and only then will we, will we be able to view these instructions, including the way we are act towards governing authorities, in the right way. However much we might try to argue that one political party is better than another, or that one way of governing is better than another, that one set of policies is better or worse than another, none of them will ever bring true, lasting change to people's lives. None of them will make any difference on that day when Jesus bursts through the clouds and the sound of the trumpet and everything is transformed. No one's going to say, hang on a minute, I was in Labour Party, surely that makes a difference. Well, I was a Liberal Democrat. Well, when Jesus appears, what relevance is any of that? Only the gospel can bring true and lasting change. I've been challenged this week as I've prepared this talk and how I've and compared how I've used my time. Because this week, like many of you, I'm sure I've spent time watching and listening to, to news events and to complex issues that dominate the airwaves, trying to understand it, trying to figure it out, trying to understand what the truth is. What is the right view? What should my reaction be to these things? I've spent lots of time this week doing that. I've not spent anywhere near as much time meditating on Jesus' return. Nowhere near as much. I've not spent anywhere near as much time reminding myself what new creation life is going to be like, as it's described in the Bible. I've not spent anywhere near as much time praying for my neighbours and my work colleagues who don't yet know Jesus and for whom time is running out. Imagine just for a moment, if you would, meeting those two disciples who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus uh, after Easter. Do you remember the two disciples, Clopas and the one that we don't know the name of, met Jesus, Jesus shared bread with them, they realised it was Jesus, and then he disappeared. And do you remember what they did? They ran back to Jerusalem to tell others what had happened. Imagine as they're running past you, you're on the road. Imagine as they're running past you, say, hey, can I have a word a minute? Have you seen the new health policy that the Sanhedrin are rolling out? It's outrageous, isn't it? What do you think? Can you imagine them? They'd be saying, well, hang on a minute. No, Jesus, I haven't heard about that, but Jesus is alive. You know, he was dead. He's alive. He's alive now forever, and he's coming back again soon. So I'm sorry, whatever it is you've got to say, it might be important, but that's where I'm focused. I've got a dash. The idea that they'd stop in all their joy and excitement and think, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, what about that health policy? We probably ought to change that. We ought to do something different. It's laughable to imagine people who have met the risen Jesus and who are expecting him to come back soon will be distracted by anything like that. However important it may seem, in light of Jesus' return, it's just not that important. They've just met the risen Jesus. What will their social media be filled with? 
What will their conversations be filled with? What will their days be like? What are ours like? Is that how we live? Have we met the risen Jesus? Are we excited that Jesus is alive and that he's at work in our lives? Are we longing to see him and to meet him face to face? He changes everything. He's on our side. He forgives us our sins. He wipes us clean. He heals. He mends. He restores. And he's coming back soon to make everything new. And he will call all of us to give account, including kings and rulers and dictators, governments, politicians. And he will pay them back. And he is much better at deciding how to do that than we are, however much we think we can sort it all out. If Jesus establishes a leader or a dictator and they use their position to bring evil, he will deal with that. He can deal with that. He's the only one who can truly do that. He is able to bring down tyrannical regimes overnight. He does that sometimes, doesn't he? Read the book of Daniel. The the human hand that came and wrote on the wall. That night, the kingdom transformed overnight. The living God does that. Until that time, in the meantime, we must be model citizens, not rebels. We must not be the most vocal opponents of authority, not the ones who break laws, not the ones who try to avoid paying our taxes. We should submit to the governing authorities. To fail to do so is to rebel against God, says Paul. So should Christians engage in politics at all? That's a question, it's a legitimate question to ask. It's a question that many of our Christian ancestors wrestled with and some decided not to. But if we do, let's just remember, let's not imagine for a moment that the answer to the world's problems, that the answer to the country's problems, the answer to our local problems lies in politics or in government. Let's not imagine that for a moment. That's not what changes the world. That's not what turns the world upside down. Only Jesus and the good news about him changes the world and transforms lives in an eternal way. Only Jesus. I don't know about you, but it feels to me like there's so much fear in the world, so much sadness in the world, so much anger in the world. And it feels at times that we're being made to feel sad or angry or fearful. That is not who we are called to be if we follow Jesus. That's what we can so easily become if we are focused on the tiny vision of change through politics, if we spend lots of our time pointing out what's wrong with the world and with those who govern it. But we, as followers of King Jesus, we are called to be always joyful. We are called to be people that Paul will describe in two chapters' time as overflowing with hope. It's when we wake up from our slumber, open our eyes and see Jesus on the horizon, see the sun just about to break through the horizon, that we will be changed into joyful people, overflowing with hope people. So what time is it? It's almost dawn. Jesus is almost back here with us. And as a result, we need to live such transformed lives, such different lives, such radical, such outrageous lives, that people will constantly see and note that we are different, 
They'll think we're strange. They'll think we're aliens. And part of that difference is a new, sometimes difficult relationship with the world and with those who seem to govern the world because the real divine emperor is on his way back. So let's clothe ourselves with Jesus. Let's love one another sincerely. Let's wake up from our slumber. And let's remember that when we wake up tomorrow morning, our face-to-face meeting with Jesus is one day closer. The night is almost over. The day is almost here. Amen.